The Lord be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south, the transcendent power of God touches earth in the love and humility of Christ. Here and now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered this Lord's Day, March 22, 2020, for our virtual congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM and around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership, service, and ministry in our midst. And as the spirit moves, come Sunday, your virtual connection and presence with us in worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it as we are able. May we stand in the praise of God. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven 
to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, we gather in virtual worship. Those from afar may follow the order of service in the bulletin, which is found on the front page of our Marsh Chapel website. We are in a different season, a fallow season. As Howard Thurman put it in a title to his sermon, fear not the fallow, fear not the fallow. We have occasions, this is one, in which to speak a word of faith in a personal voice toward a common hope. As our musicians guide us, we begin this Lord's Day in this very week with prayers of confession, compunction, lament, and listen for the pardoning voice of God. Let us pray. For the grace of God, we would not be, we could not love, we should not speak. But by God's grace, we live and love and speak. Hear good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention that such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 23 with the antiphon. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
In the Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. Glory to you, O Lord. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. They did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid, for they had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ.
Beloved, many near and far are praying for elder, elderly or variously compromised loved ones now in this season of virus. The eerie changes, including our own here in a quiet sanctuary, bring out and back other memories of the hours following John Kennedy's assassination, of the 1987 market crash, of the Enron debacle, especially of 9-11, and that particularly for those just coming to awareness of history and life in those years. Of 2008, and what that meant for our graduates in those hard, lean months following. And now, Corona 2020. Right now, you may be bearing the inability to visit a loved one in the necessarily confined nursing home or care facility in which he is located. It is a season of dislocation, profound and pervasive dislocation. My sisters, nearby and perseverant, provide most of the daily care for our mother at 90 in a nursing home. Once a month or so, I see her. She greets me knowing that she should know who I am and not wanting to appear discourteous or ungrateful. I stumble through some sort of greeting. She is at ease, happy, bright. She then looks out into a distance that I do not see or understand. I mention a conversation with my aunt, her sister. She nods and then looks again out into a distant something. I remember a conversation with my sisters, Cynthia and Kathy. Cynthia and Jackie, she asks. Again, the turn out to the distance. I show a video of her youngest West Coast great-grandson. Nice, she says. Then the gaze, the outlook, out to the beyond. What is it that she is looking at, or looking for, or looking toward? A hug and a kiss and a goodbye. My friend Sam told me a decade ago about his mother in this season of looking out into the beyond. He always left her saying, I love you. And she always replied, I love you. And then one day she added, remind me, why is it that we love each other? Through all the traumatic and terrifying dislocations of life, the response in the moment of the lookout beyond, the response to the question, and why do we love each other? Is himself the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. We love because we are loved, even in the heart of dislocation. John chapter nine is about dislocation. It is about the expulsion of a small group of Christians from a traditional synagogue. One word, chapter nine, verse 22, holds the whole gospel of the day. A Greek word, aposunagogos, out of the synagogue. They were thrown out of the synagogue, dislocated, a fearsome hurt now known by many directly in this very hour, in illness, in separation, in isolation, in quarantine. And known better, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, by those of us who may just acquire a little more sympathy, a little more compassion, a little more care for those in need as we swirl through this season of need. The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. John 9 describes the healing of a man born blind and the communal controversy surrounding that healing. Like the rest of the gospel, this passage reports two layers of healing, of blindness, of community, and of controversy. On one hand, the passage remembers, perhaps by the aid of a source or as part of a source, a moment in the ministry of Jesus, say the year 30 AD, in which a man is given sight. 
On the other hand, the passage announces the spiritual unshackling of a hero in the community, say 90 AD, who bears witness to what Jesus has done for him, no matter the repercussions from others, from parents, from family, from community. The preacher in the Johannine community of the late first century is telling the story of the Son of Man. To do so, he celebrates the courageous witness to healing and the courageous endurance of expulsion of a man born blind. Here, he says, is what I mean by faith. The story he uses comes through untrackable oral and written traditions from 30 AD. The story he tells comes from life, 90 AD. Every character in the story thus has two roles. Jesus is both earthly rabbi and heavenly redeemer. The blind man is both historic patient and current hero. The family is from both Palestinian memory and diaspora synagogue. The opponents are both the contemporaries of Jesus and the nearby inhabitants of the synagogue, the Johannine community's former home. When Jesus gives sight, Christ gives freedom. When the blind one is cured, the congregation sees truth. When the man is cast out of the synagogue, the community of the beloved disciple recognizes their own most recent expulsion. When others criticize Jesus, the community outside is criticizing the church. When the healing story ends, the life of faith begins. His voice both addresses you and emanates from you. Not your voice, his is nonetheless your voice. John 9 illumines the central struggle of the community, their bitter spiritual itinerancy from the familiar confines of Christian Judaism out into the unknown wilderness of Jewish Christianity. History and the history of religions bear manifold witness to this kind of crisis in communal identity and the long hard trail of travel from primary to secondary identity. In retrospect, as the community gathers itself in its new setting, the pilgrims in Boston, the Mormons in Utah, the Cherokee in Oklahoma, the story of the tearful trail itself becomes the heart of communal memory and imagination. What is here unearthed in John 9 can also and readily be applied to the rest of the Gospel of John as well, to the wedding at Cana, to Nicodemus, to the woman at the well, to the healing on the water, to the feeding of the 5,000, to the controversy with the Jews, to the raising of Lazarus, to the farewell discourse, to the trial and passion. All of these reflect the experience and dramatic interaction between the synagogue and John's church. This includes later the mysterious figure of the paraclete, the spirit, who functions as Jesus' eternal presence in the world Jesus, as Ernst Kesemann said, God striding on the earth. In this way, the paraclete himself creates the two-level drama, where the world is monofocal and can see only the historical level of Jesus in history, or only the theological level of Jesus in the witness of the Christian community. The paraclete, the spirit, binds the two together. The word dwelling among us and our beholding his glory are not past events only. They transpire in a two-level drama. They transpire both on the historical and contemporary levels or not at all. Their transpiration on both levels is itself the good news, an overture to the rapturous discoveries of freedom in disappointment grace in dislocation, and love in departure, especially in John 9 through dislocation. Tell me sometime about your worst lived dislocation. Santa Teresa of Avila traveled endlessly to reform her Carmelite order. Once upon a rough Castilian road, she was heaved out of a lurching cart into the mud. Lifting her eyes to heaven, she cried, 
What a fine thing you have done to me, dear God. A voice replied, that is how I treat all my friends. And her tart response, no wonder you have so few. She too knew dislocation. There is a physicality to the mystical prayer, the contemplative devotion in the work of Teresa, our Lenten conversation partner, this Lent 2020. Teresa had to have a carefully balanced approach to her writing and teaching, honest to herself, helpful to her order, but, but outside of or unscathed by the watchful critique of the Inquisition. This is a dilemma many know in searching the heart while still mollifying the powers that be. She even had something of an emotional affair one year with a priest. She reflected praying about the prayer, the soul becomes dyed with the color of its thought, quoting Marcus Aurelius. Teresa was a woman of some Jewish descent, a woman of Jewish descent. She was challenged by difficulties with inexperienced and insensitive directors, yet she cherished the absolute gravity of God's grace given beyond expectation or desire and admonished herself to be content to be near the light. She longed for a state of prayer in which we sense ourselves anchored in the presence of God, awaiting a sense of delight when the soul does not know whether to laugh or to cry. Long before Hegel, she lived a dialogical spirituality, both through her, through her deference to the church's challenge and critique and through her confidence in the presence of God's agency. Her prayer rested in a physical involvement in the inner process of prayer and a hostility to technique. She could combine her frailty and her fallibility with the irresistible experience in prayer of love. She could think twice, hold two thoughts, two vistas together at once. That is, Teresa of Avila developed her own, her own manner of prayer as we should too. For her, this included locutions, a kind of speaking in the spirit. For her, this included the companionship of Christ an awareness of being loved by God, so loved that any need we have is met in advance. For her, this included the assertion that God does not want anyone to be a passive contemplative. For her, this included an admission that God's grace is always and ever a shock to the system and the admission that we continually need to relearn the realities of friendship with God in Christ. God looks on the person while worldly regard concentrates on wisdom and status, a warning for us academics. And her conclusion, Christ as a companion both affirms and challenges us, both affirms and challenges our emotions. Teresa developed her own manner of prayer. Can we do the same? Shall we do the same in this quieter Lent 2020, this fallow season? May we endeavor to do the same. As Santa Teresa of Avila learned from within her dislocation, finding grace in dislocation, as in John 9, we too pray to do so in our time. And by grace, we have help. It is all around us. Stephen Kinzer in the Boston Globe has helped us this week writing, our new crisis also illustrates the danger of continuing to define enemies the way tribes and nation states have for centuries as outsiders who threaten aggression. Protection from that kind of enemy may come in the form of a strong army to be used in defense, counterattack, or preventive war. In today's world, though, civilization's most potent enemies threaten all states. 
pandemics, nuclear war, and climate change are the three most urgent. Yet we cling to traditional models of power politics and confrontation, even on matters of urgent common interest. If the Chinese and American governments had spent the last two decades nourishing their public health systems as generously as they have nourished their armies, our present crisis might never have emerged. Bill McKibben in the New York Review has helped us this month writing, the motto for those studying the real world effects of global warming is probably faster than expected. The warmth we've added to the atmosphere, the heat equivalent each day of 400,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs, is already producing truly dire effects decades or even centuries ahead of schedule. We've lost more than half the summer sea ice in the Arctic. Coral reefs have begun to collapse, convincing researchers that we're likely to lose virtually all of them by mid-century. Sea level rise is accelerating, and the planet's hydrological cycle, the way water moves around the planet, has been seriously disrupted. Warmer air increases evaporation, thus drought in arid areas, and as a side effect, the fires raging in places like California and Australia. The air also holds more water vapor, which tends to drop back to the earth in wet places, increasing the risk of flooding. America has recently experienced the rainiest 12 months in its recorded history. Beloved, in this season, fallow season of dislocation, we have spent now about two weeks to resituate and recalibrate our ministry together here at Marsh Chapel. It is notable that through all manner of dislocation, in concert with that known in your experience, wherever you may be, with that of the Gospel of John and with that of Santa Teresa of Avila, we have found God's grace sufficient. So in these weeks, down came the notices, up went the strictures, out flew the letters, in came the responses. As in the gospel, we found grace not later or otherwise, but right in the heart, right in the heart of dislocation, though not without cost. Don't you know it is always in the small things? I was fine through all the big changes, so named more or less. But then in her typically gracious, quiet way, our director of hospitality, Heidi Fermanis Kortz asked, you know, Dean Hill, the sanctuary would be empty on Easter. I guess, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I guess, I need to cancel the Easter lilies order, don't I? And there it was. An Easter without lilies, the first in 42 years. Maybe though, these lesser hurts will allow us to look up and to see and to learn to love one another as Christ has loved us, to be as he is for us, personified grace right in the heart of dislocation. Hear the gospel. The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. Amen.
we now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds in prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer in your surroundings as the choir sings, Lead Me, Lord. Dear God, we pray for your holy church, that we all may be one. Grant that every member of the church may truly and humbly serve you, and that your name may be glorified by all people. We pray for all bishops, priests, and deacons and others doing ministry during this time that they may be faithful ministers of your word and sacrament. We pray for all who govern and hold authority in the nations of the world, that there may be justice and peace on the earth. Give us grace to do your will in all that we undertake and that our works may find favor in your sight. Have compassion on those who suffer from any grief or trouble, that they may be delivered from their distress. Give to the departed eternal rest, and let light perpetual shine upon them. We praise you for your saints who have entered into joy, and may we also come to share in your heavenly kingdom. Let us pray for our own needs and those of others. Almighty and eternal God, ruler of all things in heaven and earth, mercifully accept the prayers of your people and strengthen us to do your will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Friends, dear and good friends all, we greet you from the quiet nave of Marsh Chapel amid the challenges and changes and uncertainties of our current moment. Please be mindful that I and the entire chapel staff have you in prayer. We are with you and we are for you and we carry a daily pastoral embrace of you. We will have an added dimension in our prayer lives just now, given the challenges of this day and hour. We are praying for you. Please see our website for news and information as we greet you this Lord's Day. In fact, by the mind's eye, we can even see you, many of you in worship, present though present in absence today. Here in the mind's eye are Sue and Ed in the front pew. There are David and Gordon and Melissa in the balcony. Along the back pulpit pew one sees, virtually of course, Cecilia, Jerry, Tim, and Deborah, and many, many others. We hope you will join us Sunday by Sunday in this season in virtual worship. You do so and in so doing join with others around the globe, across the country, and here in New England with those in El Paso, Texas, Washington, D.C., London, England, and Honolulu, Hawaii. We invite you now to a moment of virtual offering. Pause to think how you may act in love and charity to your neighbor this coming week. And we warmly invite you to support the ministry of Marsh Chapel, a heart in the heart of the city, and a service, this service, in the service of the city. Your prayers, your virtual presence, your gifts, and your service make a difference for the good.
I give thanks unto God with my mind. I count one by one much that has come to make me glad. I remember the simple delights, the taste of food, the tasteless refreshment of cool water, the feeling of fatigue followed by restful sleep, the friendly greeting of many who pass me in the daily round and whose smiles deepen my faith in ordinary kindness. I remember, yes, I remember, and in my mind, I give thanks to God. Taken from, I give thanks unto God with my whole heart by Howard Thurman. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen.